Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. It's a joy to serve the Lord, isn't it? Isn't it thrilling to be on the winning side? I tell you what, this morning Jesus rules. and I'm glad to be here with you. The commands of Christ, that's our message series we're in this morning. The title is The Six Commandments of Attentiveness. Now, the title alone is going to make you listen, I'm sure. And if that doesn't, just watch my tie this morning. And I hope it doesn't mesmerize you. Whenever I wear this tie, you know it's going to be a matter-of-fact sermon, black and white. But anyway, all right. Now, this morning, do you ever feel like that recently you've not been able to concentrate on more than a few seconds at a time? Well, don't worry. You're not alone. It turns out that as humans, we are now officially worse at focusing than a goldfish. You're right. Research now by Microsoft Corporation of 2,000 people. Well, Canadians, but that's a joke. 2,000 Canadians, good people, has shown that between the year 2000, that's when they basically say the mobile phone revolution began, and 2015, that our level of attention span has decreased by a whopping 25%. So if you can make it eight seconds without getting distracted by your phone or your email or by your cat or neighbor's dog or your guest dog or that weird stain on your shirt or whatever, just give yourself a round of applause because being able to concentrate is getting increasingly hard. Now, I say that because really this infographic really does impact our lives in a big way. If uh, you are at a store, you're talking with a salesperson, don't expect them to concentrate past eight seconds. Or if you're a salesman and you're trying to sell something, you're only, you're only going to get eight seconds. If you're, patient, if you're a patient and your doctor doesn't give you eight seconds, well, of course they don't. But anyway, no, they're, they're good people. And, but it's hard. We all have a trouble concentrating. And if you're a teacher, it's challenging to keep that attention going. And yes, even in churches, the fact of the matter is we're all dealing with goldfish, because as human beings, we are distracted. Now, I know we get uh, hard to remember things when we get older, but it's not just getting older. The fact of the matter is that they say that office workers will check their email box 30 times every hour, about every other minute. Americans touch their phones 2,600 average, 2,617 times per day. And they unlock their phones 150 times on average. Browsing online, well, they say that um, when people go to a website, they often leave, most often, in 10 to 20 seconds. Now, we might say, wow, that's just crazy how 
bad it's become, but really it is human nature. Maybe gotten worse, but it goes all the way back. In fact, even God said, you need to pay attention. The word for attentive in the Old Testament is the word to prick up your ears. It's used, for example, in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse number 1. Proverbs 5 and verse number 1, Solomon was counseling his son. And here he said, my son, attend to my wisdom. Attend, be attentive, bow thine ear to thy understanding. It's an oft-repeated theme in the book of Proverbs. And it's important because someone who is not attentive, someone who's not concentrating, will become easily distracted. That's one thing if it's not important. But many times it's from important things. That's why the New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews said, we need to take heed. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed. That's the same concept of things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So easy to let things slip out of our mind. In our fast-paced world, it's too easy to get caught up in the rat race. And when we do so, we often let important spiritual truths slip. Like human goldfish, we get distracted and we lose sight of our true purpose in life, and that is to, we exist to live and worship and love God. That's why we're told to focus, to focus, to be attentive. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit reminded us of. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, he said, We have a race to run. Run it with patience. There's a race. Run it with patience. It's set before us. It's your race. Your race is not my race. My race is not yours. Let us run with patience, looking unto Jesus. Don't get distracted. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. He started your faith. He will finish it for you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Today... Six ways to resist the allure of the world and keep our focus where it begins, on Christ. There's a beautiful old Christian classic known as The Pilgrim's Progress, written by Baptist minister John Bunyan. It's an allegory, and in this allegory, you may remember, I'm sure you've probably read it or seen a little uh, video of it, Christian and faithful to people are going through Vanity Fair. There at Vanity Fair, they are offered all sorts of things. But Christian and faithful, they have a good response. They put their fingers in their ears, and they look up, and they keep their eyes away from the world and towards heaven. Today, may we, like pilgrims in Vanity Town, not allow ourselves to be distracted as we go through life. This morning, the six commandments for attentiveness. A forgetful husband thought he had conquered the problem of remembering his wife's birthday and their wedding anniversary. And so he came up with a great idea. He opened an account with a florist, provided them with the dates and instructions to send flowers, along with the inappropriate note, your loving husband. His wife was thrilled by his newfound display of attention. It was all going good until one day, many bouquets later, he came home, kissed his wife, and said offhandedly, nice flowers, honey. Where'd you get them? (laughs) 
Today, ladies and gentlemen, let's pray. And let's ask God to help us pay attention to what God has for us. Certainly, we ought to be as attentive as a goldfish this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your cautions, and we're grateful for them. Holy Spirit, now gather our minds. Lord, I feel like in my spirit there's a lot to cover. And so even the sense of what we're doing, Lord, plays into the theme, and that is there must be good attention. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you'll just let all the distractions melt from every heart. The things that they might be thinking, they might be worried about or stressed about or whatever, Lord, they just might for a few moments be set aside. We want to hear from you. And Holy Spirit, we don't want just mere words. We want you to speak to our soul. And you know my prayer, that each of us would move to the next level in our spiritual life. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in our Commands of Christ series, over ten messages now. So far, God has given us many wonderful cautions and support. God wants us to have our best life. He wants His people to escape the common traps that most humans fall into. There are commands in the Bible. There are over 900 commands in the New Testament. We're calling this the commands of Christ in that in the New Testament, our Lord and Savior is front and center. Are you paying attention this morning? Are you attentive to what God wants you to do? Well, here are six ways to help each and every one of us. Now, the New Testament word most often used for attentiveness is the word beware. It is the Greek word proseho. It is spelled P-R-O, so you can already see where it's going. P-R-O, pro, meaning with or for. Seho, S-E-C-H-O. So it comes from two words. The word which means to look ahead, to go with something, and then mind. And so to with our mind to look ahead, be on guard, beware, pay attention, take care, heed to something. For example, our Lord most often was the one who said to beware of things. In Matthew 6 and verse number 1, you may recall when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. And then again in Matthew 7 and verse 15, beware of false prophets, beware. There's that word again, proseo. I want you to, with your mind, look ahead. Be alert. In chapter 12 of the book of Luke, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. How grateful, then, we should be this morning that our Lord is so kind to us to tell us six things to be aware of. And here they are. Number one, be aware of cheating people. That's my phrase. But you'll, I think, get the sense as we go through it. Beware of cheating people, unfaithful, so-called friends or people you meet. Look at verse 17. But beware of men. That's in a general sense, not males. Beware of people. He's not saying be bitter about humanity. He's not saying be resentful. Just be conscious of the tendency of human nature. Be Aware of men, for they will deliver you up. It's not if, they will. They will deliver you up to councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. 
Each of us want to believe the best about others. We certainly do. We don't want to imagine that anybody, our neighbors or our countrymen or people we know, have ill designs towards us. And I'm here to say up front, we should not live suspicious, angry, bitter lives. But at the same time, we should not be naive, especially as we deal with people in this world that are married to the world. Now, the primary interpretation of these verses is to prepare God's people who minister. That is, if you're a minister, if you're a pastor, if you're someone out there in the Lord's work, especially full-time work, and you need to just be aware of what you're facing. However, as we saw last week, really everybody is a minister. Whether we minister like those dear ladies did to Christ with the ministry of hospitality or music or whatever the case, we're all really ministers. I think we could say that this applies to anybody who serves. The fact of the matter is, however, I think a great application to this command Maybe not the primary interpretation, but a very good and sound application would be the fact is that we should be aware of people. That is, do your homework. Just don't accept everything. Just don't be naive. Maybe we could say, do background checks. Now, I'm not saying we should hire a private investigator before you go get a haircut or something. I'm not talking about that, of course. Now, there are official times when maybe you're going into ministry or employment where there does need to be an official check in addition to the interview process. But there are unofficial times like dating when you need to do your homework, especially if you didn't grow up with that person and you just met them. Or maybe you've gone on a Christian dating app. Someone needs to ask your lifelong mate the hard questions. You know, those make or break questions like, do you eat kale? Can you juggle? <laughs> Just kidding. Well, not about kale. but um, No, actually, someone does need to ask them the hard question, and sometimes they're not always easy to ask the person you're interested in. You need to ask them, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And why do you know that? And push even a little deeper than that. What makes you sure, based on Scripture, that you have truly accepted Christ as your Savior? You'd say, wow, those are some questions right up front. Well, those are just the beginning. And uh, there are a whole lot of questions you could and should ask about not only spiritual things, but a lot of practical things. If you'd like a copy of that list, you can get that from my book out there in the lobby on the home. Because there we talk about courtship. And the somebody needs to ask the uncomfortable questions that maybe you don't want to ask. Maybe it's your dad. One dad had eight simple rules for dating my daughter. Let me share with you a couple of them. Rule number one, if you pull into my driveway and honk, you better be delivering a package because you're sure not picking anything up. Number two, you do not touch my daughter. If you cannot keep your hands off my daughter, I will remove them. Good idea. Number three, I am aware that it is considered fashionable for boys of your age to wear their trousers so loosely 
but they'll appear to be falling off their hips. I want to be fair and open-minded about this issue. However, in order to assure that your clothes do not, in fact, come off, I will take my electric staple gun and fasten your trousers securely in place around your waist. One more. As you stand in my front hallway, waiting for my daughter to appear, and more than an hour goes by, do not sigh, do not fidget. If you want to be on time for an event, you should not be dating. My daughter is putting on her makeup, a process which can take longer than painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Instead of just standing there, why don't you do something useful like go out and change the oil in my car? Seriously, someone does need to do background checks. Your mom, your brother, your dad, or one of your pastors. Make sure you get some background. You must beware. Interesting, the Greeks use that term. It's a nautical term, which actually means to look ahead and stay on course. They would say, don't sail off course. And folks, if you get off course... By not checking your instruments, you might end up in Timbuktu. You don't want that. Why Solomon warned in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 15, simple people believe every word. That's what they do. But prudent? No, they, they look well. They, they look. That's the word. Maybe the person speaking to you actually believes what they say. They may be wrong, but they actually believe it. Maybe they don't believe it. You don't really know. Maybe... You only heard half of what you thought you heard. Or maybe what you heard sounded so wonderful up front, like that timeshare that just couldn't go wrong, or that big RV that just you know was the best plan. But you didn't really think through the full impact of what that would actually mean. Whatever the case, God says, pay attention. It is always wise to be aware. A prudent man will try before he trusts in the old saying. Consider the source. Like a human actuary, weigh the probability of the words that are being spoken to you. It was the Apostle John, they called him John the Beloved, who affectionately warned believers. Look what he said in 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, he loved people. He said, please, believe not. Interesting thing for a pastor to say, isn't it? Believe not. Believe not. Don't believe. Sounds kind of strange. But what he's saying is don't believe every spirit. Try them. And see if they're of God. Because the fact is there are many false prophets that are gone into the world. Many. Not just a few. Many. Believe not. Now there are many wonderful things that we should believe in the Christian life. The fact of the matter is the Christian life is a life of believing. It's a life of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, without believing, it's impossible to please God. But to be a spiritual person, you can't believe everything. Because not everything is really of God. And strangely enough, not everything even spiritual is of God. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm not into church. I'm just a more spiritual person. Believe not every spirit. Because they're not always of God. I will tell you as a pastor, I am amazed when you give people truth and they don't believe it. And that's amazing to me. But I'm also amazed what people do believe. (laughs) 
He's like, what in the world? And I will tell you, and I know you know this, but there is an epic struggle going on in America about what is true and what is false information. The devil came to Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him with misinformation. And how did Jesus handle it? Well, we know how he handled it. Three different times he was tested with misinformation, and he handled it by knowing and by quoting the Word of God. And just so we're clear, he quoted the Old Testament. And just so we're clear, he quoted one book, Deuteronomy. That's the pointy sword book, apparently. He said to the devil, he said, no, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, if you don't know the Word of God, you can't beware. But when you know the Word of God, you can at least have the beginning of awareness. If you're not an active, faithful member of a Bible-believing church, you need to be in a Bible-believing church, not just one that makes you kind of feel good and you like the vibes. No, it needs to be a Bible-preaching church, a meat-and-potato church like one of our dear members tells me. We need a church like that. If you're not, In a church like that, you are going to be a big old shiny button to the devil. My dear wife and myself recently took a couple of day getaway to the coast. And of all things, we ended up at a golf course for a little while. Well, I parked my cart to go up and putt. It was a beautiful moment, really. I saw beautiful birds flying around. The air was cool. I was with my beloved. We were listening to nice music. I was enjoying the serenity of God's creation, eating one of my favorite snacks, banana chips. Life was good. I putted and left the green, and as I turned to come back to the cart, I realized that those beautiful, majestic birds who appeared unconcerned with me were in fact just waiting for me to leave my cart. Big, ugly, nasty ravens were on top of my car. They were on top of my golf bag, and they were on my seat, and they were eating my banana chips. Now I'm a peaceful man. I wouldn't intentionally hurt even a flea. But I will tell you this, you start eating my banana chips and you're dead meat. My friend, don't be naive or some big old ugly raven is going to eat your banana chips. Just be careful. Be aware of cheating people. Be loving and be kind, but don't be naive. Number two, be aware of covetousness. Luke chapter 12, verse 15, there's a second command here for the watchful Christian. And he said unto them, Take heed, beware of covetousness, for as man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. A man came to Jesus expecting him, hoping maybe, that he'd speak as a judge, at least as a community leader, a religious leader. And basically, he wanted him to tell, maybe the better word would be command, his older brother to share the estate of their late father. That's the story here. Seemingly a reasonable request. But let's dig a little deeper for a moment. Now, some commentaries believe that the man was the innocent party, and his rich brother, dude, was... uh, greedy and not sharing. Others make the point, and I would agree, that based on our Lord's response, that it was this complaining brother who was the problem. He was actually trying to get it over on his brother, demanding more and more and more money, basically saying, if you're such a good religious person, you'd give me 
more money. He was looking at his brother as kind of never-ending ATM machine. So Christ uses this moment to speak against the spirit of covetousness. Here's what the Lord says wisely. He said, you know, honestly, I'm not going to mess with this on a civil level or even on a personal level. That's really something you're going to have to settle. But I do want to speak about a bigger issue here. And it is an issue that perhaps is the most underreported of all sins in the Christian life, and that is covetousness. As believers, we need to be very attentive. We need to beware, Jesus said, beware. It is very easy to become covetous. And you constantly have to watch yourself against this prevalent spirit. Because Jesus said happiness doesn't consist in the abundance of your things which you possess. And we might say when you possess them wrongly, they begin to possess you. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with having lots of money, nothing wrong with things or having lots of things. That's not what he's saying. He is saying it just doesn't equal happiness. And he basically told the guy, okay, so you're wanting a bigger share of the inheritance. That's what you're really after. Okay, so what if you get it? What's going to change? Are you going to be like so much better, happier? I mean, what are you thinking it's going to bring to your life? The sin of covetousness is not limited just to money, however. We could influence, we could covet someone's influence or their fame or their career or sometimes people covet people's uh, loved ones or wives or husbands. And, and I think what Jesus is saying here, we need to be careful that we don't covet things. Now, there are things that we should covet, actually, in the Bible. For example, the Bible says we should cover spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, he said, covet the best gifts. That is, there are good things to covet in the Lord's work. We ought to covet that we know more about the Bible, that we have more power in prayer, that we're more effective in ministry. Those are things that we should covet or desire. And there's certainly nothing wrong with coveting physical things like peace, you know, peaceful environment, a good job that has good pay, so... I can have a single income kind of job or we can, you know, raise a family without my wife working perhaps. Those are all good things. But it's when those desires become inordinate, even acceptable things, and that's what Jesus is cautioning about. Mark Twain once said, modern civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. I'll say that again. Modern civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Now, the fact of the matter is, the abundance of things doesn't do it for us. Things. The minister was speaking about all the things that money can't buy. He said money can't buy happiness. It can't buy laughter. It can't buy love. The congregation was thinking deeply. He said, what would you do if I offered you $1,000 not to love your mother or your father? A hush fell over the congregation. They were thinking about his thoughts. Finally, a small voice on the front row raised an important question. How much, Pastor, would you give me if I wouldn't love my big sister? (laughs) But the truth is we should love without coveting. Pastor Stephen Cole gave two tests for greed. Let me give them to you. Number one, do I enjoy material things more than I enjoy knowing God? 
You get a raise, man, I'm up here. But you just kind of yawn, whatever, when you hear about some soul getting saved. That's a problem. There's a second one. Not only do I enjoy material things more than enjoying God, but what would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune? What if a long-lost relative left you a large inheritance? What would your first thought be? Wow, am I finally going to get my boat I've always wanted? Nothing wrong with a big, beautiful boat, not at all. But the fact of the matter is, would it even cross our mind that maybe God gave us that great inheritance to be a blessing to the kingdom of God? Does that mean we shouldn't spend money on ourselves or our loved ones or live at a poverty level? No, that's not what God is meaning there. I think when God gives us all these things, we should enjoy them with a thankful heart. But just stay alert. Be attentive. Charles Kingley said it this way. He said, if you wish to be miserable, just constantly think about yourself, about what you want, about what you like. And that's exactly why our Lord said here, just beware. Just be on the watch. Don't give in to covetousness. Be aware of cheating people. Number two, be aware of covetousness. Number three, be aware for those under your care. Now, not only should we be attentive to our own spiritual growth, but others as well. Take heed. The verse says, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to the flock. Now, the context of this passage is that the immortal pastor, Apostle Paul, was the keynote speaker for a pastor's retreat they were having of Ephesian elders. He gets up and he rings the bell. He said, gentlemen, you need to be on your toes. Not only for yourself, but for your congregation, which he called a flock. The Holy Spirit has put you in charge as an overseer, so be careful to guard and protect those people. The application of this verse, however, is not just for pastors. It is for anybody who shepherds. Parents shepherd children. Fathers and husbands shepherd and mothers shepherd. You might be a boss. You might have people under you. You have friends, all really people influence others. As good shepherds, then, we need to be aware. If we're not aware, crazy things can happen, even just sometimes just a little bit too long on that phone. Just a few days ago in the Gulf of Mexico, you may have seen it, an operator of a 300-foot ship was distracted on his phone. He was the one on the lookout. Just for a few seconds, he took a phone call and wasn't looking. He ran into another ship. $12.3 million worth of damage. All because he wasn't paying attention. Folks, we can have tremendous shipwrecks in our own life and others if we're not paying attention. First of all, notice what he says. He said, be attentive, therefore, unto yourself. Check the shepherd, then check the sheep. Here's what Solomon said in Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Keep your heart of all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's been said water never rises above its own level. The fact of the matter is those we help will never rise above us. That's why we have to be attentive to ourself. How is our own private life going? But then it says be attentive to others and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Now, technically, this is talking about someone who's um, leading a church, leading a ministry. The Greek word is episkopos, epi, meaning 
over, and scopas, meaning looking at a scope like telescope. He says, you're looking over, so I want you to make sure you keep your eyes out. What should you do as a good shepherd? Let me suggest three things. First of all, be watching about the grazing that is going on. The grazing, be sure to pull out any poisonous weeds in the pasture as much as you can. Because sheep don't really know how to distinguish good food from bad. They'll just go along and eat it all up and get sick. There's also guiding involved as a good shepherd. Helping them walk wisely. They'll walk right off a cliff if you're not there to help them. Share your cautions. Share, yes, your sanctified failures, meaning how God took it out of it and how that you've gotten victory. Not only grazing and guiding, but guarding. You need to get a big stick, not for the sheep, but for the wolves. Sheep have really no way of protecting themselves. And sometimes people who are wiser or very more experienced, maybe a better word, can whack those wolves because those sheep just can't make it without you. When you're in a position of privilege, responsibility, like a parent, sometimes you need to step up. You need to say, look, we need to do something about this. Sheep constantly go astray from a flock. That's just part of what they do. And if they do so, so much, we know that Jesus said that sometimes they have to break the leg of that lamb so that they won't do that. To prepare our children for life, sometimes we have to be very direct with them. You know, one big tech CEO said this. He was at a graduation ceremony, and he said, you know, you need to learn to do what you're supposed to do. If you think your mother was tough, you wait until you get a boss. And so I appreciate that. The fact of the matter is we need to help those around us and share our cautions and, yes, sometimes beat the wolves off. Beware of cheating people, covetousness, people under your care. Number four, be aware of cynicism. The fact is we live in an evil world. It's so easy for our heart to grow cold. Acts 13, verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest that which come upon you, which is spoken in the prophets, be old, ye despisers. One paraphrase says about verse 41, it's watch out, cynics. Or another one says, don't be careful, you don't get cynical. Now this actually is a sermon excerpt from a newly converted Saul, now named Paul. He's in Antioch. The Holy Spirit tells him to preach about Habakkuk. So the Apostle Paul stands up and he quotes the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. In that day, God was doing an unbelievable work back in the Old Testament time. God was raising up Chaldeans to chasten his own people. Now that just seemed crazy. Why would God use an evil pagan nation to punish his own people? And people were doubting the prophet. They were saying, oh, you're crazy. They were cynical. Here, it's a little different, but still the same. The wonderful work in Paul's day was that God was going to use the Jews to save the Gentiles. And some of the Jews were saying, oh, that's crazy. They were cynical. And their hearts were growing cynical. And it's too easy if we're not careful to go through life jaded. We can look around us and see everything that's wrong. Everything that's wrong with our job, everything that's wrong with our neighborhood, everything that's wrong with our family, our church, our nation, whatever the case. If we're not careful. We'll stop 
remembering that Jesus died for everyone. And Jesus wants to save them. And that's why they're in the situation they're in. Peter Adams said it this way, Cynicism gives us the luxury of being right without the responsibility of working for change. Nothing wrong with being upset with what's going on. But don't be cynical. Cynicism is highly contagious. Hang around cynical people, you'll be cynical. Read cynical stuff all the time, you'll still become a cynic yourself. A clear example is in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Here the prophet lays into these people. He said, you're saying it is vain to serve God. Wow, really? People were saying that? I mean, they were telling each other, it doesn't pay to serve God. Here I am. I Look at my crop and look at my family and nothing good is going for me. The pastor said, what in the world's got into you people? Why are you talking like that? And they were cynical. The fact is, it seems increasingly popular today for well-known people, especially Christian leaders, to get cynical. I've been reading recently of authors and Christian leaders, musicians, that have become true to themselves, they say, authentic. And now they're deconstructing their faith. Well, I would say, first of all, you have to have something constructive before you can destruct it. I would seriously doubt their legitimacy of their faith. But second of all, I'll be frank with you about this, and I, I really don't have any respect for someone who publicly tries to hurt the faith of others, especially these little ones, by testifying of their so-called joy of backsliding. I would say to those who do that, look, just be honest. You want to sin, so go sin. If that's what you want to do, if you want to be stupid, go sin. You're not having a crisis of faith. That's hogwash. You just want to live in sin, so go on out there and sin. But don't be trying to get all these precious children and young people to do what you're doing. Yes, you can get, yes, amen. It's a warped version of the gospel that says, everything has to go good or I'm not going to be happy with God. Really? Come on. That's a warped sense. The cure? Here's what James said, chapter 1. Count it all joy, brethren. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Come on. Your testing is going to prove great things in your life. The old gospel chorus says it best. The longer I serve Him, the sweeter He becomes. The fact of the matter is, it is all good in heaven, but until we get there, it's not all peaches and cream. Beware of cheating people, covetousness, those under your care, cynicism, and beware of endless contention. If we're not careful, we'll get caught up into a never-ending bitterness about what's going on in the world. Folks, you can't look at the world constantly and not come away just saying, man, this is crazy. It is crazy. But this contention, that cynicism has to do with what's inside. This endless contention has to do with what's on the outside. And that's why Paul said it this way to the Colossae church. Chapter 2 and verse 8, beware. There's that word again. Postheo. Beware, lest any man spoil you. It's an interesting phrase. It actually means to be carried away, like to be swept away, to be stolen, actually, carried off by uh, enemies. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Deceit is things that 
seem one way, but in fact they're not that way at all. After the tradition of men? <laughs> yeah. Wow, boy, isn't that the case. People passing on lies from one generation to the next and saying, yes, that's just precedent. <laughs> it's not precedent. It was wrong to begin with. And you're just passing it on from one generation to the next. After the rudiments of the world, it says. That means like the ABCs of humanism. It's always the same. Every generation, it's the same. Human people trying to do things without God of the world and not after Christ. Watch out for people who drag you into endless arguments, he's saying. They will carry you off as captive. False teachers were kidnapping people from these churches. They were spinning all these lies and human philosophies, and people were just falling for it. You know, one of the saddest commentaries on American Christianity is that, you know, most of the people that are in cults today came from churches because they weren't solid into the Word of God. So that's why Paul gives a serious warning here. You need to be attentive. You need to be aware. Take some spiritual pseudophed and get all wired for the Lord. Stay attentive, whatever it takes. That's what Paul said to Titus. He said, you need to warn these people, chapter 3 and verse 9, avoid foolish questions. Foolish. They're just foolish. Why mess with them? They're genealogies and contentions. Strivings about the law. They're unprofitable. How many times will we see people getting kidnapped? And so often it's young people, especially young adults, young college age, a clear warning. Beware, lest they carry you off through philosophy. The word philosophy comes from the word philo, friend or lover, and sophia, wisdom, a lover of wisdom that is really just uh, Gentile wisdom, philosophers. You know, philosophy is uh, such, a, such a crazy thing. G. Campbell Morgan said philosophy is a quest and never a conquest. Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham said, any philosophy which deals only with the here and now cannot be adequate for man. The great English cleric and commentator D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if a philosophy of life cannot help me die, then it certainly can't help me live. We've all heard the definition. Philosophers are people who talk about something they don't understand, and they think it's your fault. Ultimately, here's the real acid test about any philosophy. Do they talk about Jesus? Do they care about Jesus? Do they refuse to talk about Jesus? Is that too elementary for them, too simple? John Blanchard correctly said, Philosophy is the search for truth. In Jesus, the search ends. In Jesus, the search ends. I love it. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 4 says, Don't be taken away by the simplicity that is in Christ. It sounds simple, but that's the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer to what's going on in Washington, D.C. and He's the answer to what the problems of the world are. Jesus is the answer. Sounds too simple? Well, that's my problem. That's your problem. That's not God's problem. Just give me Jesus. I work so hard trying to open every door. Search near and far, turning over every stone. I close my eyes till I find no rest. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. There's nothing I desire that can't be found in you.
Now finally this morning, beware of changeableness. Don't be a Christian flip-flopper. Stay steady. Verse 17 of 2 Peter 3. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing that ye know these things before, beware. There's that word again. Look ahead. Lest ye also, being away, led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So easy to lose your footing in this world. Lots of winds of craziness blowing. Lots of boulders you can step on. What's the answer to the things that are going on? The next verse, verse 18. What's the answer to all the things that are happening? Grow in grace. Grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior. You might say it this way, grow or slow. A little boy fell out of his bed. He was crying. His mom picked him up and put him back in bed and asked him, Why would you fall out? He said, Well, I guess I went to sleep too close to where I got in. Now, folks, that is actually what happens. We are still too close to where we got in. No wonder people fall. They just kind of accept Christ, but they don't grow. They're too close to where they got in. They never grow. We should never get to a place where we feel like we got it all spiritually nailed down. Just keep taking the next step corporately. Once you believe, then get baptized. Once you get baptized, belong. Become a member of the church. And then in your private life, just keep serving the Lord. Just keep putting the Lord first, praying, worshiping, inviting people, giving. I love the way this verse 18 ends. Look what it says. To Him be both glory now and forever. And that's the way I want to live. Glory now to God and glory forever. Not only in the sweet by and by, but the nasty now and now. I want to live for Jesus. Friend, if you're living for this world today, you are living a foolish, foolish life. If you're following Satan and his worldly concepts, you're following a loser. Revelation 11 says the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. Let's stay attentive. Certainly, let's not be a goldfish Christian. Our heads are bowed and our eyes. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.